Good morning. How are you? Well, over the next uh, couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about uh, two front burner issues um, in our culture uh, today, uh, the issues of homosexuality and um, gender identity. And uh, so to kind of help uh, set the stage and get us uh, ready for this, I have what I hope is going to be a really helpful illustration. So you all know what this is right here? Yeah, it's an air filter. It's an air filter, and I'm not going to do any maintenance on the facility uh, today, uh, but rather going to use this uh, to to point out that we we all have filters uh, when it comes to God's Word and uh, trying to understand and apply what it has to say. And uh, this is particularly true when it comes to issues of uh, sexuality and gender and things like that. And so um, what I want to encourage you to do, um, by the way, let me just make a note that you're supposed to change these every three months, so uh, just a little public service announcement you may want to go home and check. And uh, if you do that, uh, you never know what helpful information you're going to get on Sunday morning, right? But here's the deal, all right? We, we, we do all have filters. And when it comes to these issues, your, your filter might be your church background, um, might be your family dynamics, uh, it might be uh, your sexual orientation, uh, it could be some abuse that you've experienced in the past. But here's what I want to ask you to do over the next couple of weeks. I want to ask you just to take your filter, and I just want you to put it aside, and I want to encourage you just to allow God's Word to have its way with you, to allow God's Word to reign supreme, really in every area, but specifically uh, in these areas. And I, I want to say this, I'm not just talking uh, to those of you who might be sensitive uh, to what God's Word has to say about these issues. I'm really even more uh, talking to those of you who might hold to what we would call the traditional view uh, in regards to sexuality and gender. Because those of us who hold to the traditional view, to be quite honest with you, have a, in many cases and at many times we have applied what the Bible has to say about these things in an unbiblical way. See, it's possible to be right in all the wrong ways, and often the church has been wrong in the way that we have applied what the Bible has to say. And I want to show you that over uh, the next couple of weeks. Now, by the way, I would include myself in this Over the last several years, the Lord has convicted me uh, at many different times of my attitude uh, towards those in the LGBTQ community. And one of the things that God has used to do that in a really significant way is a book by uh, Pastor Peter Hubbard in which he he makes this quote, very, very powerful quote. He says this, any Christian uh, who can mock a homosexual or speak unkindly to a drag queen is suffering from amnesia. If her attitude towards a gay or lesbian person is discussed, we have forgotten the gospel. We need to remember the goodness and loving kindness that God poured out on us. God should have looked at us and been disgusted. Instead, without condoning our sin, he loved us and saved us. That's a powerful statement, but it even becomes more potent when we recognize and we look at the passage from which it comes. It comes from Titus chapter 3, where Paul tells us that as Christians, here's what we're to do. We're to speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Why? Well, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to show you what God's Word has to say about homosexuality and gender identity. But what I'm also hoping to do is I'm hoping to show you how we can apply the, these truths in a much different way than we have in the past. How we can do so in light of the glorious gospel of God's grace. We're going to look at the truth, but we're also going to learn how we can apply that truth in a loving and a gracious way. As I think uh, before we get started, since this is such a heavy, heavy topic, uh, we need to go to the Lord and ask for his help today, all right? So let's do that right now. Father, uh, we do thank you so much for how good you have been to us. We want to affirm today that we don't deserve a bit of it, that all we deserve is your wrath, all we deserve is your punishment, and yet all that you have given us is mercy and grace. Thank you for your kindness, the kindness that leads us to repentance. Thank you for sending your son to die in our place, to take the penalty for our sin, to show us grace when we deserved anything but. Lord, what we're going to talk about the next couple of weeks, the heavy, heavy topics uh, that affect us and impact us in various ways. So we need your Holy Spirit. We need his help. We need his guidance. We need his working. Lord, most of all, I want to pray that uh, across all of our campuses today that uh, your gospel will shine brightly. Lord, wherever we are at, whatever we need, whatever our sin and our struggle is, I just want to pray that your gospel may be clear, our need for it may be clear, and most of all, that you will give us the power to believe and be changed by it today for your glory and our eternal good. It's in Jesus Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. All right. So, with all of that hopefully setting the stage, let's now look at what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. We're going to talk about homosexuality this week. We'll talk about gender identity next week. And when it comes to homosexuality, there are about a dozen uh, passages or so uh, in the Bible that address this issue in one way or another. But today, I want to look at three of them with you that will give us a really good summary. We're going to look at one passage from the Old Testament, uh, one passage from Jesus, and then one passage from the Apostle Paul. We'll begin uh, in Leviticus, in a section of the Old Testament, where Moses is giving the people of Israel what is known as God's holiness code. Leviticus 18.22 says this. It says, you shall not lie uh, with a male as with a woman. Uh, it is an abomination. So this is a really good summary statement of pretty much everything that the Old Testament has to say and what the Old Testament consistently has to say about homosexual behavior. It's an abomination. It's uh, a wicked thing before God. Now, with that said, um, anytime we point out what the Old Testament has to say about to homosexuality, we, we leave ourselves open to the charge uh, that we're picking and choosing what verses uh, we follow. And, and that's because uh, not only does Leviticus uh, prohibit homosexual behavior, but also prohibits eating things like uh, shellfish and pork, all right? And I don't know about you, uh, but those are like two of my favorite categories of, of food to eat, all right? I've told you before uh, that I love shrimp, I love bacon, my ideal entree is bacon-wrapped shrimp, right? Uh, you've heard me say that before. 
And so I will uh, cheerfully and joyfully um, just uh, consume those things at any and all times. And we're really thankful for, for, for bacon, aren't we? Aren't we thankful for bacon? Everybody wants to say amen to that, all right? But, okay, but, but here's the deal. I, I think that that's okay, uh, but I also believe that the Old Testament prohibits homosexual behavior. So how is this not inconsistent? Well, what we have to understand is we have to understand that in the Old Testament there are three different types of commands. There are civil commands, there are ceremonial commands, and there are moral commands. The civil commands serve to govern um, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, and since we don't live under that government, we're not a theocracy, all right, those commands don't apply to us today. The ceremonial commands, things that have to do with ritual cleanliness, such as washing of hands, what foods can be eaten, uh, what uh, materials you can wear, what fabrics you can wear, all expired, okay? All of those went away when Jesus died on the cross. We are pure in God's sight, not by what we wear, what we eat, what we do, but what Jesus has done, because of what Jesus has done in dying in our place. Further, uh, we know from Acts chapter 10 that God has made all foods clean. You remember the story, right? Peter's taking a nap. He has a vision. Okay? And on the vision, there's, there's all kinds of food on, on this tent, on this sheet. All kinds of things that have been considered before unclean, all right, including pigs. In fact, God speaks to Peter and literally says, okay, we can see this, this pig wrapped in a blanket, okay? And he says, Peter, eat the bacon. Eat the bacon. And as I said earlier, we're all thankful uh, for that. So the civil and the ceremonial commands are, are no longer applicable to us here today. However, the moral ones are because A, they reflect God's unchanging character, and B, they're reaffirmed by Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament. So this really is a, a litmus test uh, for us. Every moral command that is still applicable to us today is reaffirmed in the New Testament either by Jesus or the apostles. So if something is in the New Testament reaffirmed that's in the Old Testament, still applicable to us today. And if it's not, then it's not. So that's what the Old Testament says about homosexuality. Let's now look at what Jesus says about it. And for that, we need to go to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, um, Jesus is approached by the Pharisees, and they have a question for him about divorce. And in responding to their question, Jesus says this, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now let me give you a little quiz here, all right? Hopefully you've been paying attention over the last four weeks. What verse is Jesus quoting here? What verse is he quoting? Can you guess what book it comes from? Genesis, and it's Genesis 2, 24. Over and over again, this is repeated. Jesus, the New Testament apostles, they, they go back, okay, and they affirm God's original creation design. Jesus is doing that here. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So, by far, the number one argument that those uh, who make um, in regards to, to homosexuality being biblically permissible is that Jesus never, ever spoke about it, and he never, ever prohibited it. 
But here's what we can say. Even though Jesus never came out and actually said homosexuality is a sin, we see here that in Matthew 19, he first of all affirms, okay, that marriage is to be between a man and a woman, okay? It goes back to God's original creation design, and then he prohibits every form of sexual immorality. And you'll remember from previous weeks that term sexual immorality is an umbrella term for all kinds of thoughts or actions outside of the marriage between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. So it's just not true that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. He very clearly taught that all sex outside of the marriage between a man and a woman is a sin. Let's now turn our attention to the Apostle Paul. And if you haven't already, go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Uh, we're going to spend a majority of our time in Romans 1 today because this really is the primary passage, um, or the most important, maybe we should say, passage on homosexuality in the Bible. So Romans chapter 1, and I really do want you to see this with your own eyes. And so if you don't have a, a Bible, uh, you can find it on page 736 in our auditorium Bible. So Romans chapter 1, it's a little bit of a longer passage, uh, but it'll be good for us to read all of it. So Romans 1, we'll pick up in verse 18. Here's what the Apostle Paul tells us. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, there's so, so much we could talk about here, but I simply want to point out three things that we learn from this passage about homosexuality. Number one, homosexuality is a violation of God's created order. Verses 26 and 27 make it clear that homosexual sex, whether it's between two men or two women, is contrary to nature. It's contrary to the way God created things to be. There's repeated references here in Romans 1 to the created order in Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, the language is eerily similar 
meaning that Paul is intentionally referring to the fact that creation reveals how things are supposed to be and that therefore homosexuality is not the way that things are supposed to be. All right, it's really, really clear. We see over and over and over again, okay, those uh, New Testament authors going back to Genesis 1 and 2 and saying this is the way God created things to be, but now here it's very clear that things are not the way they're supposed to be, and that's definitely true when it comes to homosexuality. Number two, homosexuality is a serious sin. Paul says that homosexual behavior is a dishonoring of the body in verse 24, a dishonorable passion in verse 26, a shameless act in verse 27, and something that deserves a grave penalty in verses 27 through 32. This is the consistent teaching of the Bible, both Old Testament and New. Everywhere the Bible talks about homosexual behavior, it condemns it in no uncertain terms. The Bible has nothing positive to say about homosexuality, and no amount of textual gymnastics will make it say otherwise. That's why we need to take special note of verse 32, where Paul gives a strong warning not only to those who participate in homosexuality, but also to those who approve of it. You see, not only is homosexuality a serious sin, but approving of it is as well. It's not something we can engage in nor support without seriously endangering our souls. So, so I just want to say this, all right? When, when, when Christians and churches okay, give at least tacit approval to homosexual behavior, okay, they are endangering their souls, this is a very, very serious issue. It is not something that we can fudge on. It's not something that we can kind of waffle on. To either engage in it or to approve of it is a serious, serious matter. It's a serious sin. Now, that said, number three, this passage shows that homosexuality is a fruit sin, not a root sin. And I want you to listen closely here because it's absolutely critical that we get this. I think many of us have uh, viewed Romans chapter 1 as primarily about homosexuality, when in reality it's primarily about idolatry. Okay, so, so I want you to listen to this. In Romans chapter 1, Paul's talking to all of us. He, he's not just addressing homosexuals. He, he's, he's addressing everybody. He's talking about everybody. When he says you, do you know who the you is? It's you, okay? It's me. It's, it's absolutely every single one of us. When we follow the passage closely, we find there's an increasingly downward spiral. What's more, homosexuality isn't at the beginning and it isn't at the end. It's in the middle. The downward spiral begins with humanity's refusal to honor and thank God as the creator. Paul says that creation clearly reveals who God is and what he has done. However, in our prideful rebellion, we have turned away from him, and instead of worshiping our creator, we worship created things. That's the ultimate sin that Paul is addressing. That's the root sin. It's a pride that refuses to acknowledge and worship God and instead worships his creation. The penalty, Paul says, for doing so is that God gives us what we want. That's what Paul means when he says in verse 24 that God gave them up. We want sin, and so God says, there you go, you get sin, with the result that there is a never-ending spiral of iniquity. Sin, can I just say this? Sin always goes from bad to worse. 
Okay? It, when you give yourself to sin, sin is never, ever satisfied. Your flesh will never, ever be satisfied. And as long as you keep giving yourself to sin, the sin will get worse. You will become in, uh, in, in, you will be in bondage greater and greater. And the spiral will continue until it kills you. That's what Paul is saying here. That said, I want you to note what Paul says is at the end of the spiral in verse 28. Look at the verse again. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The end of the spiral is not homosexuality, it's a debased mind. And Paul goes on to say in verse 29 through 31, a debased mind produces things like envy, covetousness, deceit, gossip, and disobedience to parents. I have to tell you, I was reading that a little bit. It's hard to get through. Okay, it's, it's just, it's hard to read it, but I want to ask you this. Are you guilty of any of those things in verses 29 through 31? Anybody have a problem with gossip, covetousness, lying, deceit? How about disobedience to parents? On and on. Are you guilty of any of the things in verses 29 through 31? Have you been guilty of them? Are you guilty of them currently? And here's what you need to say. By the way, you know what the answer to that is? Yes. It's yes. We're all guilty. And therefore, what we need to see today is we need to see that if we are guilty of those things, then we're in no better place, no better position than a homosexual. We are no better than them. All right? We are just as guilty as they are, and we find ourselves in a situation where we need exactly what they mean. Now, we might fool ourselves into thinking that we're better, but Paul actually goes on in chapter 2 to show us that we are. In fact, notice what he goes on to say. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. So let me get to you, make sure you get what they're saying. Paul is saying is if you condemn a, conde uh, a homosexual, you're actually condemning yourself. Because you're just as guilty as they are. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So here's what Paul's trying to get across to us. He's trying to get us to see that we're all unrighteous. He's trying to show us, as he will go on to say in chapter 3, that we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of God's glory. Regardless of, of what our sin is, whether it's homosexuality or gossip, all right, we're all in the same place and we all need the same thing. We're all in need of the gospel. We all need to be made righteous through faith in Jesus. That's why Paul actually says in the introduction to Romans, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or beginning and ending in faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So, so here's what Paul's telling us in, in really the entirety of Romans, but specifically in, in the first three chapters. All of us have the same problem. We're unrighteous. 
And the solution is available to all of us, and that is the gospel. The gospel whereby we are made righteous, we are turned from unrighteous to righteous through faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. There is no difference. We're all in the same place. We all need the same thing. So in summary, then, Romans 1 tells us that, yes, homosexuality is a sin. It's a serious sin. But guess what? So is every other sin. Every sin is serious because every sin makes us unrighteous in need of a Savior. So what does a homosexual need? Well, he or she needs the same thing a heterosexual needs. We all need to be made righteous in God's sight. And that happens not by anything that we do. It doesn't happen by our uh, heritage. It doesn't happen through the church that we go to. It doesn't happen because we were born good people, because we were born heterosexuals. It happens through faith in Jesus Christ. We all need to be converted out of our unbelief and to believing that Jesus Christ died in our place, rose again, and through faith in that, we are made righteous in God's sight. And so, let me just say this. If, if you're um, a homosexual today, all right, here's what I want you to know. Here's what God wants you to know. You have not committed the unpardonable sin. Paul makes that actually clear here in Romans 1, 2, and 3. You're not any worse than anyone else in this room. God loves you, and he wants to make you righteous and cleanse you from your sin, and he will do so right now if you will place your faith in what Jesus did for you when he died in your place and rose again. That's the offer that God makes to you today. On the other hand, if homosexuality isn't the sin that you wrestle with, Perhaps there's another sin that's taken root in your heart right now. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's anger. Or maybe it's a pride that judges others and keeps you from dealing with your own sin. Regardless, God offers the same forgiveness to you today. Confess your sin and be cleansed from your unrighteousness. Trust in what Jesus has done, not in your own goodness, but in Christ's work in your place, and you will be made righteous today. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time uh, answering a few common questions about homosexuality and same-sex attraction. There, there are questions, uh, lots of questions, perhaps, that we could wrestle with and we could talk about, but I, I just want to try and answer four of them today that hopefully uh, will go a long way in helping us to apply what we have just seen um, in God's Word, what the Bible has to say about these issues, all right? So, so here are four uh, big kind of questions that I think that we need to wrestle with and try to, to answer and apply to our lives. Number one, are people who experience same-sex attraction born that way? Are they born that way? Um, is, is Lady Gaga right, all right? Does God create people with same-sex attraction? Let me try to answer this uh, question in, in two ways. First, um, if you look at it from science, okay, on the basis of science, uh, it actually pretty clearly indicates there's not a genetic basis um, for same-sex attraction, or at least it's a very minor factor. I simply refer to studies of identical twins that show this um, to be the case. Second, though, we have to realize that because of sin, we're all born with unnatural desires, 
I've actually realized in this series that we need to talk more about anthropology, um, and, and specifically we need to talk about how Adam's uh, original sin has impacted all of us and affected us, uh, and maybe we'll do that in, in, the, in the months ahead. But for now, I just want us to realize that because of sin, we are all born, okay, bent away in certain, in certain ways um, from the way that God created us to be. This is absolutely critical. Just because we feel something or we desire something doesn't mean that it's right and God created us that way. For example, I'm by nature um, a very impatient person. Okay? I want things my way right away. All right? However, I can't blame my impatience on God, okay, and say, well, you made me that way, so that's just the way it is, and that's okay. No, my impatience comes not from God, but from sin. God didn't make me that way. Sin did and does make me that way. You might not think that the same is true regarding sexual orientation, but it is. God didn't create human beings with same-sex attraction. The Bible is clear about this. However... Sin does alter nature, and so, yes, some people are born with same-sex attraction. We just have to realize that this comes not from God, but from sin. The key in all of this, though, of course, is what I have stressed over and over again in this series. We have to make God's Word supreme and not our desires, regardless of what our desires might be. I'll remind you of the example that I used in the first message, all right? We've got to allow God's Word to be the thermostat and our feelings to be the thermometer. So our feelings are legitimate, okay? In other words, they, they are real, all right? However, we've got to allow God's uh, Word to be the thermostat that tells our feelings where they need to be and directs our feelings to, to where they should go, so if we experience same-sex attraction, we have to understand that that's not how God designed it to be. And, and therefore, although our feelings are real, we need to seek to realign our feelings and submit them to God's Word. Number two, is same-sex attraction a sin? might surprise you here, but I'd actually say not necessarily. I say this because temptation in itself is not a sin. Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are and yet was without sin, which means that we shouldn't equate temptation with sin. The issue comes down to what we do with temptation. Do we give into it or do we fight and resist it? I think in many ways um, homosexual temptation works the same way as heterosexual temptation. Uh, for example, um, if I accidentally see um, an inappropriate image, say something on TV or on a computer. Again, this is, this is an accident, not something I'm looking for. That's not a sin, okay? If that temptation comes to me, that's not a sin. However, what I do with that image could be, if I dwell on the image and I allow lust to form in my heart, then it turns into sin. On the other hand, if I turn my heart away and resist the temptation, it's not. And I believe the same is true for those with same-sex attraction. So, if you do experience same-sex attraction, I hope this is an encouragement to you. I know that same-sex attraction can bring a special kind of guilt and shame that heterosexual attraction does not, but you need to know that simply having the temptation is not a cause for that. 
temptation, the same-sex attraction, makes you no more guilty than Jesus when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And so I would urge you to fight as Jesus did with God's word and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Question number three, how do we minister to those struggling with same-sex attraction? How as individual Christians as a church, how do we minister to people who are wrestling and who are, who are, who are perhaps even fighting with this? Well, I'm not exactly an expert here, so I'm going to defer to a guy by the name of Sam Albury. Uh, he's an Anglican pastor in the UK. Uh, he's a guy who actually, for most of his life, uh, has wrestled with same-sex attraction. All right? He's uh, celibate. He's faithfully following the Lord. He's written a great little book called Is God Anti-Gay? We have it available at all of our campuses today. I encourage you to pick it up. It's very, very helpful in helping to understand uh, these issues. Uh, and in the book... He makes a number of suggestions of how the church can minister to those struggling with same-sex attraction. And they include, right, four things we're going to look at here real, real briefly. They include, I think we're going to look at them. We have them. Maybe not, okay? There. All right. Actually, that's not right, so take that off. I'll just say, tell you what they are, right? Uh, I'll give you four. They're honoring singleness, dealing with biblical models of masculinity and femininity rather than cultural stereotypes, making it easy to talk about, and remembering that church is family. All right, now we're going to talk about the first two in the coming weeks, all right, the, the singleness and biblical models of masculinity and femininity. But I want to talk right now about uh, making it easy to talk about and remembering that church is family. If we're going to minister to people who are struggling in this way, and, and we need to, okay, we need to, we're first of all going to have to make it easy to talk about, which means that we're going to have to refrain from making insensitive and offensive comments. You say that again? We need to refrain from making insensitive and offensive comments. Now, I just want to say this. I recognize that it's highly unlikely that any of you are going to make uh, one of these comments in front of me. But I would love it if that were true for every single person at Harmony. That we would have the courage and the boldness of when people make comments, that we would be willing to step up and to say, that's not in line with the gospel. That is not how God would have us to respond to people who are struggling in this way. So we have to, in the words of Colossians 4, speak in a way that is gracious and seasoned with Salt. So we've got to speak the truth again, but we've got to do so in a way that shows that we are being gentle and gracious and loving. And I want to speak to parents here for, for just a moment once again, because let me tell you this. Um, more people, and particularly young people, struggle with same-sex attraction than we probably imagine that they do. This is a real significant issue, and it's becoming more and more of an issue all the time, uh, largely in part because of the influence of our culture and very simply peer pressure, all right? So parents, I just have to tell you that uh, the, kind, the way that you speak about this issue, all right, around your kids is going to be huge in whether or not they are going to feel free to when they do struggle to actually speak to you about it. If you make insensitive and offensive comments about LGBTQ issues, all right, and your child is perhaps struggling or wrestling with this, they are not going to feel safe to talk about it with you. They're going to keep it hidden. And as I've been saying the last couple of weeks, that is the absolute worst thing that someone can do. 
you want to speak about this issue to your kids and to really to everybody. This includes not making jokes, okay? It includes not making pejorative comments about people or about the issue. It means actually speaking gently and graciously. Again, just keep on saying that so that if your child is struggling with it or even if they just have a friend that's struggling with it, they are going to want to discuss this and feel free to do that with you so that you can help them wrestle through these issues biblically. Make sure that you speak gently and graciously about them. In conjunction with this, we have to remember that the church is supposed to be a family. And so let's talk about the church here. The church is supposed to be a family, a family that is always looking to add new members. That means if someone is part of our congregation, we need to treat them as a son or a daughter, a brother or the sister. Or sister. One of the greatest needs of those with same-sex attraction are the kinds of relationships that only a family can provide. And I'm not talking about a nuclear family. I'm talking about God's family. On the other hand, if someone isn't part of our congregation, our desire should be to see them become a part and the best way to see this happen is to invite them into our lives. Now, I know that we can get, uh, we can get really kind of worried. We can get concerned. We can get anxious. There might even be some fear here in doing what I'm talking about doing. But friends, we need to realize that this is what God did for us. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has welcomed us into his family with all of our issues, with all of our rewards, with all of our problems, with all of our mess. And when we get that and we understand that, that turns into us doing the same thing for other people, whatever their issue and their struggle may be. So here's the fourth and uh, perhaps the most important question. What does all of this mean for Harmony Bible Church? Where exactly do we stand on homosexuality, same-sex attraction, gay marriage? Where, where, do we, where do we stand? Where do we land on all of these issues? All right? So maybe you're wondering about this, but we, we need to be really clear about this, particularly in the, the day that we're living in. So I'm going to conclude today by making six statements. All right, these are six statements that I borrowed and adapted from uh, Kevin DeYoung. He has a great book called What Does the Bible Say About Homosexuality? I encourage you to, to, look about, to look at that and to study that for, for more info here. But I made these statements uh, four years ago when we first addressed this issue. But I'm going to make them again today uh, for two reasons. One, there's a lot of new people uh, that have come over the last four years. And then two, it's always good for us to be reminded of these things. All right, so here they are again. Here's where we stand. First, if we're speaking to cultural elites who despise our beliefs in us, we will be bold and courageous. We won't capitulate and we won't back down, come what may. We're going to stand here and we're not going to move from where we stand, even if it costs us. At some point it will cost us. might not be today, but some, sometime it will. But whatever it costs us, we're going to stand on what God's Word has to say. Second, though... If we're speaking to those who struggle with same-sex attraction, we will be loving, gentle, patient, and empathetic. Let me say this. Um, you, you might look at this statement, and you might say, I don't know that I'm there. And you know what? It's okay that you're not there as long as you say, I realize I need to get there, and I'm going to commit to work to getting there. 
right? We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about making progress. So, so as long as we say, okay, we recognize that this is what God would call us to, and that's where we're going to head, we're good. On the other hand, let me say this. If you're here today and you're like, I'm not there, I have no desire to get there, and I'm never going to get there, here's what I just want to say to you as gently as I can. It's hard for me because at this point my blood boils a little bit, okay? But I'm just going to say this. If you're saying, that you, you really, if you say, not me, never, two options. You can repent or you can realize you probably need to go to another church, right? We're not going to have that here. It will not be acceptable. Third, if we're speaking to sufferers who have been ministered to by the church, we will be apologetic and humble. Fourth, if we're speaking to shaky Christians who seem ready to compromise the faith for our culture's approval, we will be persuasive and persistent. Fifth, if we're speaking to those who are living as the scriptures would not have them live, we will be straightforward and earnest by speaking the truth in love. And then sixth, if we're speaking to belligerent Christians who hate or fear persons who identify as gay or lesbian, we're going to be clear and corrective. This is where we stand, so help us God. Let's pray.